Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. My guest today is Kevin Barron, arguably the foremost blotter art artist on the planet, and I am not exaggerating in the slightest. In fact, I don't know if I can name another blotter artist, but maybe Kevin will be able to tell us. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Kevin. Hello, Richard. Nice to be with you. Thank you. And you're coming to us today from London, I believe, correct? Yes, indeed. It's just after five in the afternoon here. Kevin, for those who are not familiar with blotter art, tell us, what is blotter art? Okay. To put it in its correct context, we'll have to give you a bit of historical background. Now, LSD uh, as a substance, a compound, was made illegal in the States in the late 60s. Um, Unlike a lot of illicit drugs, the format of presentation has been various types. It could be in liquid form or it could be in pill form. Anyway, into the early 70s, somebody realized that, hey, LSD is potent in very, very minute amounts, you know, 100 millionths of a gram or 200 millionths of a gram. I mean, it's smaller than a grain of salt. Um, So the idea was well, in that case, if we put it into solution and then we soak a sheet of blotting paper, which we divide or perforate, say, into a thousand squares, we can measure out exactly how much LSD is in each square. Um, so this became a very common format of pr- presenting the drug on the underground market. So if I understand you, Kevin, you're saying that the liquid LSD uh, is placed onto blotter paper, and the paper is saturated and and then perforated and cut into little uh, little squares, sort of like the way we get postage stamps. Is that right? Exactly, exactly. Um, to give you a, uh, an example, let's suppose you have a gram of LSD crystal, which uh, if it's 100 mics per hit or 100 millionths of a gram, then we have 10,000 doses. So what we do is we take a sheet of blotter paper, say an A4 sheet, which has been designed and then perforated into a 1,000 squares, 25 by 40 quarter-inch squares. We then calculate the absorbency rate of that sheet of paper, say it's 12 mils. So from that, we can calculate how many sheets of paper we need to put into the LSD solution to saturate them. Uh, And then they dry out and you have on one sheet, a thousand hits of LSD, and perforation makes it easier to separate the individual units. And approximately, what are the dimensions uh, of each of the individual units? Oh well, okay. If 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 we were in the United States or the United Kingdom or Canada, New Zealand, the odds are that we'd be using an imperial system. So these would be broken down into quarter-inch squares, but then. If you get into some other European countries or Japan, you might find a square that is measured in terms of centimeters. So it would be slightly larger. But it's uniform for the United States, the United Kingdom, to still use the imperial measurement system of a quarter-inch square. So, in other words, a person could then take a few of these squares, put them on the back of a postage stamp, put the stamp on a letter, and mail it anywhere in the world and when the receiver got the letter, they could take that postage stamp off and they'd have their blotter art LSD on the back of the stamp. Is that right? Exactly. And I'll give you a classic example. In the prison system, certainly within the United Kingdom, probably more than likely in the United States, um, friends of inmates would put one small square behind the postage stamp and mail the letter into the friend who's incarcerated. So they'd have access to a drug uh, through that particular system. But yes, that's exactly what one could do. And let's go back in history now. How did you first get introduced to the psychedelic medicine referred to as LSD? Well, a good place to start is at the very beginning. 
um, with my first psychedelic encounter, I was 17. And I just graduated from grammar school, which I guess in the States is equivalent to about the 11th or 12th grade. Um, anyway, rather than attend university, I'd elected to pursue a fine art course for four years. Um, I was keen drawer and painter even at an early age, so it seemed like the right path that I should go down. Anyway, it was early June 1964, so we're talking 58 years ago, and I was to start my first semester at art school in September. So I took a job during the summer vacation as a porter at the local psychiatric clinic or mental hospital, as such institutions were labeled in the UK in those days. Um, I struck up a friendship with one of the hospital's nurses, and although the relationship remained platonic, I was, I suppose, hoping that things might blossom further. Um, but anyway, she'd spoken enthusiastically about a revolutionary type of chemically induced treatment being experimentally used on schizophrenics in the hospital, um, also manic depressives and even acute alcoholics. Um, both she and a couple of psychiatric doctors had self-medicated the particular chemical and were wildly enthusiastic, not just regarding its possible medical benefits, but they foresaw possible applications in the development of creativity and artistic expression. Um, naturally, I was about to pursue a possible career in the field of the arts. The nurse was convinced I would benefit from a controlled uh, and maybe monitored trial of this wonder drug, lysergic acid diethylamide. Um, over the years, I've helped and monitored others before and during an LSD encounter, even with a limited or perceived extensive pre-knowledge um, of the experience, it would be fair to say that the vast majority of individuals show quite high levels of anxiety or concern before ingesting the compound. Um, understandably so, this is not a substance to be treated lightly, and the nature of the experience, its ability to create ego dissolution, can for the uninitiated become um, perhaps a rather frightening and terrifying encounter. Anyway, there I was in the gardens of the hospital trying to impress the nurse. Um, so I went with the flow. And bear in mind that at that time, all right, I was 17, but also I didn't smoke. I hadn't drunk alcohol except the customary glass of sherry at Christmas with my parents. Um, and I hadn't taken any other drugs. So this was literally my first drug encounter. Um, but as I say, um, needing or wanting to impress the nurse, I decided, hey, look, I, I don't want to make a fool of myself. I'm just going to go with the flow. And literally, my perception changed dramatically throughout that afternoon. We were in the garden, um, and they, for some unusual reason, I think, they have these incredibly well-manicured gardens and beautiful flower beds. I presume it would be beneficial for the pa patients in some way, um, although because some of the treatment that I witnessed inside the hospital kind of seemed uh, out of context with, with this beautiful garden. Um, and I spent a vast amount of time just lying on the grass looking at the rose bed. And then I took myself beyond looking just at the rosebed and absorbed myself into staring into the interior of a rose blossom. So it was this kind of macro, micro experience. Uh, and this is something I've carried forward in my artwork to this day, this ability to go and see something really close up and observe the workings of something that under normal circumstances you wouldn't pay any attention to. So for me, as a budding artist, the whole experience was just this opening of perception. And that was really the key word. I was starting to look at things for the first time. Uh-huh. And so tell us what happens next. You have your first LSD experience, the doors of perception, using uh, Huxley's words, Huxley's words. Were, were opened up for you. And when was your next uh, psychedelic medicine experience? Okay, well, after this, I mean, I started out at, at the art school. Um, but what was interesting 
the first two weeks of the course, we weren't allowed to touch a paintbrush or a pencil. We were told just to look at things, to perceive things, not just objects in, in their own right, but also the spaces between objects. So this whole development perception, and, and for me it was slightly ironic because I'd already gone through this experience uh, earlier that year um, with my first LSD experience. It seemed to be manifesting itself in the approach that the art lecturers were taking towards uh, our instruction. Um, okay, second encounter, two years later. Um, I was into my second year of my degree course, and we had a really interesting lecturer. Obviously, um, I specialized in painting and printmaking, but uh, we had ancillary subjects like art history and psychology of art. And the uh, particular lecturer for our psychology of art classes, um, he had spent a lot of time in Central America and was interested in the Aztecs, the Mayans, the Olmecs, and various cultures from Central America or Mesoamerica. Um, and we got talking one time, uh, and he started talking about plant medicines that have been used by these various societies for thousands of years. Um, and at that point, I said, well, strangely, you should mention that because I think we're talking about a similar type of substance, although mine was a synthetic. And I told him I'd had an LSD. I'm completely shocked. He couldn't believe that uh, a new student had already encountered uh, a psychedelic of this form. Um, so we talked a lot more about uh, various plant medicines, etc., and the psychedelic experience. Um, and then about two or three months later, he managed to access some LSD himself. And he arranged for a group of the students to go away for the weekend. We went away to a country house, which looked like it was something out of... Uh, Elizabeth I, one of these old Tudor mansions, white walled with black beams. And I guess it was about six or eight students. We, we went there for the weekend. And we had a kind of an informal LSD. Um, one thing that I, I know perhaps I find difficult is the idea of having a prearranged uh, uh, session. In other words, okay, Saturday morning, 9.30, I'm going to take LSD. Well, to me, that never kind of really works. In fact, I used to carry for about 15 years a tab of two in my wallet. And reason being, I'd find myself in a particular situation and instinctively or intuitively I go, now's the time to take some acid. And I think having that intuitive and that positive approach, I've never had a bad trip, not one single bad trip. Um, and I think, for me anyway, uh, that's worked successfully over the years. Now, it may sound like I've been taking acid for a long, a long time. Well, yes, in terms of length of time since my first experience, but I've probably only done less than 50 acid trips in my lifetime. I kind of view it um, in, a, in a sacramental way, not in a Christian religious way. It's not like I'm tasting the blood of Christ or anything like that. But I find it, it's a leveler. And it helps me to understand myself. It's almost like a therapy session. Um, and always the following day is that day of pure clarity when everything seems not just visually crystal clear, but your whole mind seems clear and all the gray matter has been washed away. So that's how I've perhaps used it over a period of time. Let me ask you a question uh, related to your carrying a few uh, tabs of it around in your wallet and then taking it at a, at a time that feels right. Um, does that mean that you might take it in a situation where you'd be out in public or did you typically do it only in, in some kind of privacy and, and solitude? Or give us more uh, a, a picture of the circumstances. I've always been an outdoor tripper. It's never appealed to me to be taking something like LSD. I mean, it's perhaps it's based on that first original experience, but I love being outside uh, and, and around people, observing people. We're back to the perception element again that is so important to me. Let's say you take an LSD trip, uh, looking back on your history of having taken it, and, uh, and you're out in public 
what percentage of the total amount of time of the experience are, are your eyes open and what percentage are your eyes closed and you're doing what you called internal therapy? Uh, Percentage-wise, maybe 50-50. Uh, I might find an idyllic situation where I can sit down, close my eyes, and, and go through that traditional experience. And of the 50-50, would you say that, say, the first half of the experience is more internal or looking out, and the second half more internal and looking out, or does it go back and forth, back and forth throughout the entire experience? Uh, it tends to go back and forth. I kind of tend to focus on the external visual aspect. I always find the first thing that I not necessarily look for, but I notice is the hairs on the back of my hand moving, like waves. Um, so then... I'll take in more visual experience, but then I will close my eyes because I sometimes find that the internal experience, i.e. with one's eyes shut, is more revealing than the external. Okay, now we're going back on our history lesson again. It's two years after your first encounter. You've just done this experience with the professor and seven or eight students at this Tudor mansion. And then w take us to the next step in your life with psychedelic medicine. What happened after that? Well, I'm graduating with my degree four years down the road, so this is 1968, um, I didn't pursue a career in fine art. Um, I'd become involved in the student union activities while I was at college, specifically as a social secretary. So I used to arrange social events for the student body. And at the time, this meant like booking rock bands and we'd have concerts and things like this or performances or dances. So I became integrally uh, connected with the music business. And on leaving art school, uh, I got a job with Island Records, which at the time was this uh, independent record company that had a few up-and-coming artists. I mean, it went on to become one of the major independent record companies in the world. Um, so I worked for them for a while, but I didn't really like the record company business. I enjoyed the music and the artists, but the business of selling records really wasn't my forte. Um, so uh, I ended up traveling to Sweden, giving up the job, moving to Sweden, where I stayed for nearly two and a half years. Anyway, during that time, a close friend of mine used to come out and visit. He was married to a Swedish girl, and uh, he'd come and visit. Um, anyway, his brother was a singer-songwriter, and he'd just recovered from a major illness. and. On this one occasion, this friend of mine, David, bought me a cassette. So I played the cassette, and I thought, wow, this is incredible music. Um, so I said, David, so what's your brother doing? He said, well, he doesn't really know what to do. So I said, go to Island Records. Anyway, this turned out to be Cat Stevens. Um, so Cat Stevens, who in 1971, I think, was the largest seller of, of records in the world at the time. So anyway, Stephen went to Island Records turned into a major artist. Um, and then he called me up and asked me to, he said, what are you doing in Sweden? Why don't you come back to London? Uh, he said, uh, there's more of interest here for you, probably. So I, I went back to London. I worked for Stephen very briefly. Anyway, the net result was I ended up working for a company that promoted the Rolling Stones in Australia and New Zealand in 1973. So I went on the road with the Stones for this tour. Um, and this became my next psychedelic encounter or my LSD encounter. Now, um, my job specifically was logistics manager. I had to like oversee rest restaurant bookings, hotel reservations, airplane flights, etc. Quite taxing because you're moving 50 or 60 people around daily from one city to another. Um, one of my specific jobs was at the end of the tour, I had to make the arrangements for, for all the tour members, including the members of the Stones, uh, to return to various destinations. So I'd be given instructions on where Mr. A wanted to go, Mr. B wanted to go. Um, so I would then spend a ridiculous amount of time going backwards and forwards to the airline offices, because those days we had these ridiculous paper tickets. Um, and I'd 
update the ticket. And of course, by the time I got back, Mr. A decided he wanted to go somewhere else. Anyway, eventually, I managed to move everybody out of Australia. And one member of the band still remained. Um, anyway, he was all set to head off back to the States and other ports of call. Um, so I drove in the limousine out to the airport with him. And, and he was a bit of a hellraiser. I won't mention his name, but uh, he had a bit of a reputation. Um, so he, he never always got the impression he never quite knew where he was. He was all right when he was on stage playing, but once you got him off stage, uh, he turned into a different individual. Um, so anyway, we arrived at Sydney Airport, and I tell him, listen, just wait here, I'll check you in. So I took care of the paperwork and came back to him and said, right, here's your ticket, boarding pass, passport. About 25 yards away is the immigration office. Where you go, good luck. Anyway, he shuffled off, and he'd gone maybe about 10 steps and stopped. And, of course, I'm standing there going, oh, no. Anyway, turned slowly, came back, and he proceeded to empty his pockets. Uh, there was a bag of white powder. There was some green herbal material and two orange-colored pills. Um, I was amazed. Given that this particular individual very rarely knew what country he was in, the fact that he managed to remember to offload any contraband at the airport before he went into immigration was just truly remarkable. Uh, but then, of course, suddenly I realized, hold on a second, I'm standing here with a fistful of illicit drugs. So I ran to the toilet, flushed everything down the, the toilet, although I kept the two orange pills, which were original orange sunshine from the late 60s. Um, I flew back down to Melbourne um, with the two pills, and I invited a radio DJ friend of mine from Melbourne uh, that we should go out and spend the day together and maybe take the acid. So we, we drove out to Dandenong Forest, which is this kind of primordial forest about 20 miles outside of Melbourne. Uh, and we spent the day blissfully watching the koalas eat eucalyptus and listening to the cackling uh, cockatoos. Um, no kangaroos, unfortunately, but uh, it was a sensational, beautiful day. And probably really the first time that I'd taken the drug recreationally. Um, so that was my third experience. So we're talking, uh, what, eight, nine-year period. But, uh, during that time, I've had three LSD psychedelic experiences. And then sometime after that, did you get involved with the creation of what we call blotter art? Well, a long process. I mean, I moved to San Francisco in 1976, and my life had changed in many ways. I divorced my first wife, and I was now traveling and living with a new partner. Um, we were both very keen and interested in, in food and wine. She was an outstanding cook, and my travels with bands like The Stones had introduced me to fantastic wines because one of the aspects of touring is you got to go to great restaurants with people just to spend money so the tax man didn't take it. Um, so we both had this uh, similar interest, and this led us to establish ourselves in the food and wine industry in California for four or five years. And eventually, we opened a cooking school in Greece, in the Mediterranean. And we used to take groups of people, primarily from the States and Canada, over in the spring and fall and give them cooking classes. So something completely alien. Anyway, um, this would be now late 80s. I was back in San Francisco from, from Greece, and I ran into an old friend from the music industry. And anyway, we spent the afternoon drinking beers in North Beach. And we talked about uh, our memories together in the past. And, uh, and what was bizarre is I'd been in San Francisco over 10 years, and he'd lived like four blocks from me, and we never actually bumped into one another. Um, so anyway, he said, had I seen Blotter Art? Do you know anything about Blotter Art? I said, well, yeah. I mean, I said, I've had a couple of experiences in the last couple of years, and it's come in this format of paper. Um, which was something that was relatively new to me. Uh, he said, well, yeah, this is, this is the process. But he said, there's a bunch of guys, some famous artists here in the Bay Area that actually produced the designs for this paper. And he said, with your background, would you be interested? Um, so I didn't hesitate. I said, yeah, yeah. 
anyway, I thought seriously about the whole concept. Uh, and what I did was uh, I picked an image or a series of images. These were a row of 10 heraldic shields. And these were shields of um, renowned French aristocrats from the Middle Ages who had all purportedly been alchemists. So there was this correlation between taking LSD and the transformation and the alchemy of turning base metal into gold. Um, so anyway, I produced this design, um, and it turned out that the customer, I had a customer who said, well, I want to buy so many sheets of paper with this design and perforated so-and-so, so-and-so. So I found a, a printer in Sausalito who was able to do the perforation, and I produced this design, one row of 10 different shields repeated 10 times. So once it was perforated into quarter-inch squares, you had a sheet of 400 hits. Um, anyway, we produced quite a large number of sheets of paper because the guy kept coming back and saying, can I get some more paper? Uh, oh, could we change the color this time? So we had a whole series of different colors and color, color combinations, but basically the same design. Now, this was my first serious design. And remarkably, this has become known as the holy grail of blotter art. Because what transpired was, um, this goes back to maps again. Um, maps were in their early days of foundation. And they were eager to raise money from various sources to support the good work that they were doing. Um, one individual in the Bay Area was probably considered one of the earlier uh, supporters or collectors of blotter art, um, managed to get hold of about 20 sheets of one of the color combinations of my shield design. These were purple shields with gold images on them. Um, anyway, he got hold of uh, about 20-odd sheets, and he flew out to Switzerland, and he got Albert Hoffman to sign about 12 of them. Now, Hoffman turned out he signed them upside down. And what transpired was he got to about number 11 and said, well, what are all these pictures on this paper with this perforation? And of course, the individual kind of had to tell him what they were for, so he refused to sign any more. Um, but anyway, we therefore had about a dozen sort of signatures of Hoffman on the shield design. And then Timothy Leary got involved. He also signed the sheet. So... We now had about a dozen sheets of shield blotter designs signed by Hoffman and Leary. And these were put up for auction, and the money raised was the money that was went to support um, the MAPS organization initially. Um, so it's quite remarkable that my first blotter design should end up being a design that become, had become known as the Holy Grail. Are those 10 or 12 uh, sheets still in existence? Oh, yeah, they're collector's items. Um, I've seen. How much are they worth nowadays? Well, I think initially they went for twenty dollars or $25,000 each. But uh, I think the value may have dropped over the years because the last time one was on the market, it went for just over $10,000. That was back in 2016. And is that with or without LSD in each square? Oh, no, no. These are all blanks. These are all, They're all blanks. Yeah, which is just as well because if somebody tore a square off, it would destroy the image, wouldn't it? Okay. So basically, you were doing a very legal operation. You were creating art and you were selling art to people, and it wasn't your business what they did with the art afterwards. Absolutely true. I mean, now, in the United States, yes, you're absolutely correct. However, um, there was a slight problem that arose that you may or may not be aware of. In the United Kingdom, under the Misuse of Drugs Act 1971, they have a paragraph, being concerned in the supply of a drug. Now, what this means is, say, for example, if I come up to you and say, Richard, do you know where I can get some marijuana? And you say, oh, yeah, that guy over there has got some. You become liable legally in England for being concerned in the supply of the drug. Uh, so consequently, I'm producing paper, but as far as the law in England is concerned, I'm concerned in the supply of the drug. So I got, and I ended up getting caught in a sting operation in 1993, early 1993. In London or in San Francisco? In London. No, I wasn't doing anything illegal in San Francisco. This was in London. In fact, 
I'd been encouraged by somebody to come over to England to produce the paper, and that was the, the pitfall. But bear in mind, I'd thought seriously about not producing any more paper, but this was particularly interesting because 1993 was the 50th anniversary of the discovery or the bicycle ride of Albert Hoffman. So I kind of was toying with the idea of producing something that was commemorative. In the end, I produced a postage stamp, funny you should mention it earlier on, um, with a man on the bicycle. And this was broken up into small squares with the initials AH in each square. But anyway, um, it turned out that the DEA in the States and the British police had been working hand in hand. Uh, obviously, they were concerned because during that latter period of the late 80s and early 90s, nobody else was producing blotter in, in the Bay Area or anywhere in the United States because there was fearful thoughts that they could be busted for using a perforation. Somebody had spread the rumor that you needed a license to use a perforation machine, and therefore it shut down a lot of illicit business. But my friend in Sausalito was quite happy to keep perforating paper for me. So I was virtually monopolizing the supply of paper at that time. Were you able to make a living and give up your day job and the other jobs you had? I, I got by, but I mean, it's not, the object of the exercise is never to make a living out of such. But I mean, one interesting fact that I will divulge that maybe a lot of people aren't aware of, that, and that is, in my experiences, and I obviously had at some point other certain connections beyond the paper aspect of the supply of the drug. I knew certain people. I suspected them of perhaps being chemists or producing LSD or whatever. But what was interesting was um, they only ever produced acid twice a year. They'd go for a run in the springtime and run off X amount. And then they take a six-month vacation, and they come back for two weeks in the fall and repeat the job. So there was never that desire or need to make loads of money. The money issue has never been that. But all the people I've ever encountered with LSD, they're all messianic about the drug. The money is never mm -hmm. the issue, never has been. And likewise with my paper. All right, I was producing more paper, but I was selling the sheets for next to nothing. So I wasn't really making a living at it as such. Was the Brotherhood of Eternal Light one of your customers? No, those were the early days. Those were the early days. Um, I see. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I know my customers by name, but uh, in retrospect, none of those names correlated to the Brotherhood uh, at any yeah. at any point. I ask that because I've interviewed them on this program, and they're going to appear in my next book, Psychedelic Wisdom. Oh, good, good. Yeah, no, I've seen I've seen some of the work. I've seen some, a couple of photographs from people posing with, I guess, one of the survivors of the group. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And Tim, but, Tim, no, I mean, Tim Scully lives right near me here in uh, Mendocino County in Northern California in the United States. Well, well that's what I, tr I call a true pioneer. <laughs> yeah, Scully for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nick Sands. I, uh, Nick Sands, I guess at one point was operating in... He, to me, is the epitome of, of the messianic LSD individual. I had the privilege not only of uh, hanging out with Nick Sands at Wilbur Hot Springs, but uh, he gave me some uh, really uh, very clean LSD that I had the pleasure of using. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah. Was it in blotter form or was it in tablet or liquid form? It was in liquid form. Okay, good, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But at one point, maybe 40 or 50 years ago, uh, let's go back maybe 40 years ago, somebody gave me some blotter art that I put in my wallet and forgot about for seven years. And seven years later, it was still in my wallet and I ingested it and it was uh, excellent. Oh, yeah. I, I had a similar experience. Um, I was going through a, a jacket I hadn't worn for a couple of years and I found two hits in the pocket, two little quarter-inch squares of blotter. Um, anyway, the following week, and I happen to remember this was a special little batch of quite strong acid that was made as an aside by a friend of mine, um, using my blotter, fortunately. Um, anyway, 
I went off to Wales with a group of six or seven people that week and went to have a, a nice weekend in the Welsh mountains. And I took the acid with me. And I said to the guy, I said, look, I've got these two hits of acid, but I don't know, we could probably split them up into eight little small squares and see how it goes. Boy, we all have a fantastic time. And this was from two hits that have been in my jacket pocket for two years. <laughs> okay, take us back to the sting operation you got caught up in. Okay. So um, I'd had, there was this customer who was English, and he'd been pleading with me, could I come over to England and show his printer how to uh, print the design, perforate the paper, et cetera, et cetera. I said, well, look, basically, I'm, 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 I'm kind of retired. I said, uh, not that things were getting difficult, but I, I just need a break. I'm coming to Europe for a, a vacation, basically. Um, so anyway... He said, "Well, give me a call if you get a give me." And of course, I kept saying, "No, no, I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm on vacation. I'm on vacation." But of course, the 50th anniversary was at the back of my mind, so I kept thinking, "Oh, hey, well, why don't I just do one last 50th anniversary commemorative LSD blotter uh, design?" Um, and which I did. And of course, um, initially, I said, "Look, I've got this design. I'll show your friends." And he said, "Well." No, he said, my friend can't do it anymore. Can you find a printer? And of course, the penny wasn't dropping anywhere at this point. No. So I said, all right, I think a good friend who's a printer. Anyway, it would take about two or three months to get the job done. So I took off with a girlfriend to Southern Europe, spent some time in Italy and Greece, etc. Came back, the paper was ready. And anyway, the particular customer said, oh, look, um, I'm in Los Angeles, but I'll send a friend round to collect a paper from you. So I said, okay, sounds fine. Um, so this character came around and he said, oh, well, I'll come back tomorrow about four o'clock to pick the paper up if that's all right with you. I said, well, okay, fine. I said, but it has to be tomorrow because I'm flying to New York the following day. Okay, he said, fine. So I'm with this girlfriend and we're out literally the day before we're to fly back to New York, and we went a spot on lunch, a bit of late shopping. We got our plane tickets ready for the next day, and we're wandering back to the apartment that I've rented. And it's about three o'clock in the afternoon, and suddenly I'm surrounded by fifteen plainclothes policemen and police women. And they go through this spiel: Is there any illicit drugs in the apartment? Blah 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 blah. Um, and I had some pot sitting around there, and I had my personal LSD stash, which was a half a dozen hits in my wallet. Um, so anyway, I thought, okay, something's going seriously wrong here. Um, so we went upstairs, and I was very calm and collected. Um, I said, yes. Uh, and, they said, Where? and they said, where's the paper? I thought, oh, gosh, okay, fine. So I immediately knew who was involved in it, the sting operation. Um, um, so anyway, I'm arrested. The girlfriend's arrested. She's taken in a separate room. Um, and I turned to the obviously said, right, we have to go up to North London to it's a special police unit where we're based. Oh, okay, fine. Um, so we get into the police car, the four of us, the driver and myself and two other plainclothes officers. Um, and they say, well, look, we have to make one stop before we get to the police station. And this was my sister's apartment in Soho. And suddenly everything fell into place because I remember taking the proof of the design to show the guy that was involved in the sting operation, and we met up in Soho. And I walked out of the flat with a manila envelope with the proof under my arm, having spoken to my sister. So it meant the police were already watching or surveilling us at that point. So everything fell into place. I knew exactly who was responsible. So anyway, off we go. Um, we're whisked off to the police station. The girlfriend's gone somewhere else. The following morning, um, we're taken off to the magistrates. There's a court system, and you go to the magistrates first before you go to the court when you actually put on trial. Um, so I'm there, and we're in this meat wagon that's taking us to, and the girlfriend's in one of the small boxes that's inside the meat wagon. And the radio is on, and they're talking about the 10 million pound LSD bust. And of course, the girlfriend goes, oh, do you think that's us? I said, well, if they're counting every little square of paper, and that's how they've come up with the 10 million pounds, the answer's probably yes. Anyway, 
Net result is they asked for £8 million bail. I'm carted off to jail. She's carted off to a women's prison. Um, and so here I am. I've never been in a police station in my life. Now suddenly I'm in a jail. Um, following morning, I come out and I get, I'm asked to see a governor. He said, oh, he said, not this week, but there's a couple of police officers want to come down and have a chat with you. And I said, well, what, what does they want to have a chat? Anyway, it's all carried out surreptitiously. They come down, they meet me. They said, we've got some people coming over from the States who would like to have a chat with you. Oh, okay, fine. Um, he said, but what we'll do is we'll take you out of the prison and we'll take you to a secluded, safe unit. He said, we've used this before for IRA terrorists when we interview them. So he said, uh, but do bear in mind, this is an expensive operation, so we need some kind of cooperation. Um, so at some point, or rather, I agree, okay? Uh, but I said, well, listen, how are you going to get me out of jail and back in jail? Because the other prisoner is going to ask, hey, where the hell well, have you been for the last 24, 48 hours? So he said, well, we've got that all covered, all covered. Anyway, the net result is they needed information, obviously. Who did I know in the States? I mean, the guy from the DEA is over. Did I know this person? I said, I don't know any of these people. Um, but then they gave me a giant folder of LSD blotter samples. And this was every sample that had been confiscated by the DEA and the UK police for the last 25 years. So he said, well, it would be really helpful if you could identify these particular blotters and exactly where they came from. Of course, I looked at the thing, there was several samples of mine in there, but the vast majority, I had absolutely no idea. However, being I'm a keen artist, I drew up this very carefully illustrated family tree and proceeded to draw the images of each of the blotters and allocate a specific country or location to them. So, for example, if it was a centimeter square, I thought, well, okay, it can't be the UK or the United States, so let's make this Japan. So I created this whole mythological uh, image storyboard of where LSD blotter designs had come from. And they were very impressed with this. So away they went. They said, well, we'll get back to you. We'll get back to you. So nine months down the road, I'm sitting in jail all this time. Uh, we're called up to go on trial. Now, I've now established a very strong Queen's Council. These are the upper echelon of attorneys in the UK legal system. And um, we've been talking about this. And I said, well, look, it's painfully obvious you've been set up. It's a sting operation. It involves the Americans. They won't give away any of the surveillance reports. They won't show us any of the evidence relating to your arrest. Nothing. We've got nothing. Um, he said, they're stonewalling us. So we, I said, well, what can we do? He said, well, what we can do is we can ask for all of the evidence that they are withholding to be released under the Freedom of Information Act in the United States because we now know that there are U.S. agencies involved in this whole operation. If it had been just a British thing, we couldn't do that. But the very fact they'd come over to interview me meant we knew they were involved. So we filed under the Freedom of Information Act for all the evidence in the case to be released in the United States. Now, the problem is I'm already nine months sitting there waiting for things to happen, and it would have taken up to two years to get all the information released under the Freedom of Information Act. Um, anyway, I said, look, I don't know if we can, is there any way around this? Because I said, this poor girlfriend of mine who was arrested with me, she's been in jail for two months. She's now out on bail, but she's got no form of support financially. She's going to be have, sitting here for up to two years. I said, we can't, can't we come to some arrangement? So anyway, so let's see what we can do. So, we're in there, and my QC is going through all the reasons why the evidence should be reached. It's like a two-day process of pre-trial hearings. Um, anyway, at the end of the two days, the judge is sitting there nodding, nodding, yes. Uh, at the end of the two days, he said, okay, he said, well, um, we're not prepared to release the uh, evidence in this case, so let's swear in the jury. So I'm standing in the box there, and my QC, the attorney, turns to me, and I do a timeout sign of the letter T, and he turns to the judge and said, well, given that you're not prepared to release all this information, um, 
I should point out that we've asked for the information to be released under the Freedom of Information Act in the United States. Panic in the court. Absolute panic. The prosecutors panic. They said, right, remove the defendants right away. So I'm taken back downstairs. And about five minutes later, my QC attorney comes down and he says, "Um, they want to offer you a deal. I said, what do you mean? What kind of deal? I said, I've been set up. I said, we could sit here for two years, but I mean, I'm concerned. I'm worried about the girlfriend. So what what, what have we got in terms of an offer? Um, He said, well, they'll give you four years. The girlfriend goes, and the money that was confiscated when you're arrested, you'll get that money back as well. Uh, I said, no, no. I said, four years. If you do four years in England, you have to do two-thirds of the sentence. Okay, so you'd have to do what's two-thirds of 48, 32 months. Um, I said, no, but if you do under four years, you only have to do half the sentence. So I said, look, you can go back to them, tell them I'll agree for the deal. The girlfriend walks, we get the money back. I do only three and a half. And of course, the QC says, you don't seem to understand, Mr. Barry. We can't make a deal like this. I said, you go talk to them right now, and that's the deal. He was back down in five minutes. Oh, and I said, I would like to make a statement to the court before sentencing. So five minutes later, he comes back down. He says, you've got the deal. I go back up. I plead guilty. They give me three and a half years. I make a statement to the court. The girlfriend walks. We get the money back. And I've got to spend 12 more months in jail. So I'm kind of one of the few artists in the world. I think Egon Schiller was probably uh, the first case of an artist that ends up in jail because of his art. In the case of Schiller, he painted a, a young girl naked when she was seven or eight years old. So he was incarcerated for that reason. But even Picasso got into trouble for his artwork and very carefully managed to avoid a prison sentence at one point. But anyway, that's the story of the bust. Um, but what happened, the 12 months I had, 12 months I produced so much art in those 12 months, it was quite incredible. I came out with a whole selection of work I'd done. So I don't know if you... Given any other circumstances, I would have had the time available to do that. And how was it for you financially? Were you able to take care of yourself and support yourself given those circumstances? No. It sounds like it could have been very challenging. I, I, when I came out of jail, I, obviously one thing that wasn't made apparent to me was I have a lifetime ban on, the, on entering the United States now. Um, funny, I, I had a friend who worked at the embassy in London and I called him up when I got out, and I said, hey, give me the, my status, you, if you don't mind. And he kind of ran things through the computer and started laughing. He said, don't even bother. So, so, the, so the great United States and the great country of England incarcerate a man for producing art, which somebody else decides to use as a transporter for psychedelic medicine or psychedelic drugs, and uh, and the artist goes to jail. This is this is uh, it's reprehensible. It's it's unacceptable. I mean, this this would be like saying, well, why not arrest all the gun manufacturers because people take those guns and then shoot people with them? I mean, okay, it, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You're you're, you're I mean, talking about an after the fact use of a produced product in which the person who produced the product is held culpable for what the next person turns their product into. Exactly, because of this simple law that they have of being concerned in the supply of a drug. Um, Let me give you a couple of interesting examples that relate to this Misuse of Drugs Act 1971. They're all uh, you have Schedule One in the United States. We have Class A. It's exactly the same equivalent. But all psychedelics come under Class A or the same categorization as heroin here in the United Kingdom. Now, um, I always thought, well, hold on a second. If it's called the Misuse of Drugs Act, and you are saying that you've determined that LSD has no medical application or use whatsoever, how can I possibly be misusing it? Because you've already stated it has no use. But anyway, um, <laughs> the, interesting, the interesting one is for psilocybin. Now, they've made various amendments over the years, but for a long time, uh, it was illegal, it still is illegal, to 
possess psilocybin or magic mushrooms, okay? Now, we have a particular type of mushroom called a liberty cap that grows all over the place, especially in the fall here in England. Um, so this became a problem because obviously a farmer could walk out in the field and there'd be a huge crop of liberty caps or magic mushrooms growing there. So technically, he was in possession. Uh, and how this came to the fore and they had to amend the law was two enterprising students broke into the grounds of Highgrove, which is the Prince of Wales, the heir of the throne's country estate. And they were there specifically to gather magic mushrooms. So they were caught and arrested. But of course, they pointed out that yes, they were in possession, but then so was the Prince of Wales because these magic mushrooms were growing on his land. So they had to amend the law in 2005 so that uh, farmers or anybody that owned land where the magic mushrooms grew uh, were not actually technically in possession. But what they did say was, okay, you walk into a field and you see some magic mushrooms, and you think, ah, magic mushrooms, well, they're against the law. So what I have to do by law is pick the magic mushrooms and take them to the police station. So in terms of the law... You're not breaking the law if you pick them, provided you're intent on leaving them with the authorities. Or you can leave them with a third party, provided you've instructed him to give them to the authorities. Interesting, arcane aspects of the law. I'm gonna, exactly. I'm going to take us in a little different direction now, uh, Kevin, and ask you, in, in what ways has your value system as a person been changed by psychedelic medicines. Oh, okay. Um, I'm I'm going to give you uh, another example of an, a psychedelic experience. This goes back forty years. Um, I'd been traveling that summer. I'd been in the South Pacific. Anyway, I kept having this desire to go to Peru to see Machu Picchu. I'd been to India, seen the Taj Mahal, the pyramids, etc. So I had this thing about I've got to see Machu Picchu. So I went to Peru and. Uh, I'm sitting on the beach in Miraflores, which is kind of a beach area outside Lima. And I get into a conversation with a German guy. And he says, uh, he said I'm going up to Iquitos, which is uh, the Amazonian uh, city in northern Peru. He said, uh, there's some friends I'm meeting up there, and we're going to go and, and participate in a Yahi experience. And I said, well, yeah, it sounds. I mean, I knew from Burroughs and Ginsberg, who'd written a book about their Yahi experiences, or as it's now referred to, ayahuasca. So I said, oh, okay, let's go. Um, so I was off to Iquitos. Uh, we went through this shamanic um, ceremony, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I retched terribly. It kind of reminded me of peyote that I'd had in Oaxaca a few years earlier. But anyway, uh, one image that kept sticking in my mind was that of the Inca deity, or from the legend or the mythology of Inca uh, legends, of Viracocha, who was supposed to be the supreme deity. And I'd read briefly about him on the, in a book on my way on the train up to Machu Picchu. Uh, and suddenly this vision appeared in my mind. And if you look at my NFT website and see the selection of artwork, you'll see this helmeted, strange-looking character. And this is the exact image 40 years ago that appeared to me during my ayahuasca experience. Um, now, to get back to your question, uh, yes, it's affected me in a lot of ways. Um, it's made me more politically aware. It's made me more sympathetic um, towards others. I, I'm not that... I, I, I was elitist about things in my, in my past, but I really find that, as I said before, if I need issues clearing up in my life, I don't go to a therapist. I take a hit of LSD. Um, and I find this has grounded me over the years, so it, it's acted as a grounding agent. I find it more with LSD than other psychoactive substances, to be honest with you. But I think perhaps that's because my first experience was LSD. And it's, to me, it's become the most profound experience. I mean, uh, it sounds corny, but one of the pleasures I get sometimes when I'm tripping is I like to go swimming underwater. And what happens 
and it's happened on more than one occasion, is I look at myself and I've completely dissolved or I've been reduced to a complete molecular structure with my environment. So this feeling, this one energy of being one with the universe, uh, I can imagine it could be quite frightening for some people, but I find this really exhilarating. And it's just this feeling of oneness, this energy with with myself and with the universe that I find so absorbing. You you literally become an Alex Gray painting. Uh, well, I think he's. I, I, I was. I mean, I've spoken to him a couple of times, but is he not? I think they're kind of DMT type paintings. I'm not sure whether they're acid paintings, but anyway, I've always related to. I've always related to them as as LSD energy patterns. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So would you, would you say that your value system has been affected with regard to, for example, such things as? economic inequality on the planet or climate change? Have perceptions of those kind of things been affected? Uh, I already had slightly socialistic opinions when I was much younger. Um, As I mentioned earlier, I, I went from a very academic situation at grammar school to an art school, and that's like a complete transformation. I mean, this is at the time of the Vietnam War. So I was suddenly... Got, I'd gone from somebody who was a bookworm, basically, to being exposed to what was really going on in the world. Uh, and the discovery of things like the injustices of war and poverty and, and criminality in certain instances uh, had a profound effect on me and still does. Yes, how I feel about climate change and all these aspects of destruction that we are putting our humanity through is deeply concerning. I mean, I'm 75, so sometimes I kind of think, oh, well, you know, you can't do too much. You can't change much in your lifetime. You're not going to be around that long. But no, you can't really think like that. You've got to somehow be able to educate the the generations behind you. Um, And I think the experience with psychedelics is really what's going to help people down the road. Um, I mean, I'm so excited that there's a renaissance in research work with, with I mean, for example, I'll give you, here's another funny little story. Currently, in 1977 in the United Kingdom, there was a police operation called Operation Julie. And this is the, the largest seizure of LSD in European history. And it became kind of a folklore subject. But guess what's just happened this week? They've turned it into a stage musical. Now... <laughs> I mean, it sounds amusing, but I mean, what's ten the, years ago, that ten years ago, that wouldn't have happened. What's the name of the What's ago, the name of the musical, Kevin? Operation Julie. <laughs> Operation Julie. Now we're going to go in another direction. I want you to tell us something about the NFT project. What does NFT stand for? And w- tell us about the project. Okay, NFT stands for non fungible token. Um, a fellow artist said, had I heard about it? Didn't I? I said, oh, well, this is to do with He said, well, it's to do with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. I said, oh, God, no, really? He said, no, no, listen to me. Um, now, one thing you have to bear in mind, that practicing artists, um, whatever the limit is of their success, uh, invariably, if they get a showing in the gallery, have to give away sometimes 50% or more of what they earn from a picture or a painting or a sculpture. Yes. Um, so um, this is a disgraceful state of affairs. Now, with NFTs, okay, it's a method of buying and paying for a work of art. Uh, but what you actually purchase is a digital form of the art. You buy it with a cryptocurrency. It's stored. It becomes yours. But what can happen is having purchased it, the buyer can then at any stage in the future sell it on to another person. So it's kind of like a stock market thing, like buying stock and selling the stock on. But from the artist's standpoint, it's fantastic because you get paid the full amount of money in the first place for the NFT, right? And then you can get residual percentages when it's sold on after that. So it's a win-win situation. And if people are, are listening to this or reading about this, can they go to a, a, a browser like Google and just type in NFT project and learn more about it? 
well, in my instance, if you go to lsd25nft.com, that's my website featuring my NFT collection. And obviously, LSD25 has a significance to you and I. There are 25 pieces of artwork in the edition. Um, Each one are actually individual. But what I'm offering, uh, which is kind of revolutionary even in this NFT market, is you buy the NFT, which in this instance is a, a short digital version of the artwork. In other words, it zooms in and out, just like the macro, micro LSD experience. You buy the NFT video, I give you a meter square artwork free of charge. So you get the artwork free, you've got the NFT which you've paid for, which you can sell on. So you, you, you can't lose. You, you get your money back and you still have a free piece of artwork. All that's um, all that's so, mis- all that's missing is a is a sting connection to someone to dip the piece of artwork into an LSD liquid. Uh, well, there you go. I mean, uh, <laughs> in addition, in addition to this, I'm now being encouraged to produce some vanity blot. You know what vanity blotter art is? Basically, you have blotter art. This would have been sheets of blotter that were dipped at some point or other in the past. Uh, anyway, nowadays, people produce vanity blotter art. So they go through the format of, uh, say, a seven and a half inch square divided into quarter inches, 900 squares, and they put an image on the front and they perforate it and they call it vanity. It's never been anywhere near LSD, never will be, probably. Uh, but this has become a huge subculture. There's websites selling blotter art. There are huge collectors. I've just come across on a Facebook page a blotter art collector's site which has got 14,000 members. Um, and I've been communicating with somebody. I mean, these people are deadly serious. They talk about the width and the perforation and this and that. Um, but it's really quite incredible. But no, my NFT thing, uh, I guess for a lot of people, they're worried about the, you know, or they, they're scared, oh, cryptocurrency, it's up and down. It's like a yo-yo. Yes, but I mean, it's a way of investing in art. You're supporting the artist. And you're getting a piece of artwork free, and the, the digital or, or the NFT digital version of, of your art, you can sell on at any time you choose. So everybody wins. You can't, yeah. LSD 25 NFT, if you want to see Kevin Barron's Dot artwork. And- yeah. LSD, right. and the 25 is the numerals, 25, LSD 25 nft.com mm-hmm. and if you go to the website there's a contact page you can get in contact with me through the website but also if you want to speak to me personally just drop me an email at kevin Barron at btinternet.com i'd be only too willing to talk say it again kevin kevin k-v-i-n-b-a-r-r-o-n at btinternet.com that's me personally the last thing thank you the last thing we're going to talk about as we're wrapping up the interview um, is um, is microdosing, uh, yeah. because microdosing has become very popular here in the United States in the last few years. Is it popular in England, as far as you know, or do you know anything about that? No, no I know quite a bit about it, but only by re- personal research. Um, there's hardly any of it. I mean, I've got a couple of friends who microdose on a regular basis, but um, they're few and far between. It's kind not widespread, yeah, I have no, a ver- no. I have a very good friend who lives in London, and he tells me uh, it's rather rare. Also, I don't. I, I think I'll connect you with him. You're both the exact same age. He's an actor in London named Michael Brandon. And oh, uh, okay, fine. Is he an American actor? Who yes, moved to you, London? Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. you may remember him from years he ago. He was on a cop TV show. That's right, called Dempsey and Makepeace. That's it exactly. Yeah, he was. Yeah, De- I'd love to talk he, to him. Yeah, he was Dempsey. He's a lot of fun. I'll introduce you. So, have you had the experience? Well, but I, I guess I better not ask you that question because you're in England, and uh, who knows what could happen. I was going to ask you about personal experiences with microdosing, uh, but I can tell you that it's a, it's very popular here in the United States. It's pretty much taken the country by storm. Particularly, Silicon Valley is noted for great yeah, use exactly, of microdosing. Yeah. And you know about that. Yeah, I do indeed. I, I've actually microdosed for about a month on psilocybin. Um, but to be honest with you, I'm never quite sure whether I was getting the placebo effect or I was actually benefiting 
directly from from the microdosing. But maybe you know, I'll give it another try, perhaps. Well, um, as long as you've well, benefited, couple, exactly. A couple of points. One, I I watched uh, an online debate between uh, Rick Dolvin and Bia Labati, who I think is an anthropologist in the Bay Area, uh, on a network that was called Intelligence Squared. And the debate was over, should psychedelics be legalized? And of course, on the other side of the fence, there was a guy that had been White House drug director at one time or another and a psychiatrist. Um, and what was interesting was they, they didn't really come to any conclusion, but it basically boiled down to decriminalization against legalization. And I think we're kind of stuck. I think I think it's a nonsense. It's in my opinion, it's a nonsensical, nonsensible argument because it's our constitutional right to be able to ingest anything we want in the privacy of our own homes, so long as we don't impose on another human being. And for any for any government on the planet to tell me what kind of substance, be it an organic compound or a vegetable that I ingest is simply unacceptable, and it's definitely opposed to my sovereign right as an individual on this planet, and I don't accept that. And I think the argument of whether it's decrim or legalization is a ridiculous argument because it has to be available, period. And and certainly there can be all kinds of warnings. I'm not uh, advocating for helter skelter, but we have warnings when we sell people alcohol. We have warnings when we sell people cigarettes, and we can have warnings when we sell people psychedelic medicines. But to continue it as illegal is is one of the most reprehensible aspects uh, of our legal system. I agree one hundred percent. And then if you think, how can we as humankind actually pass laws banning organic matter that's grown for hundreds <laughs> of thousands or millions of years. I really? Mean, how, yeah, how can we say, oh, you can't eat that mushroom, it's illegal? Hold on a second. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, it's, it's all part of this dreadful control system that, unfortunately, both you and my country uh, live under. Very much so. Kevin, it's been a pleasure interviewing you. Thank you so much. When I come to London to visit my friend Michael Brandon, I'll definitely give you an email and we'll get together. I'm sorry you can't come to the United States. You'd be welcome in my home at any time. Uh, th- that's uh, unfortunate. And... Uh, I wish you well. All right. If I may just finish this wonderful moment that we spent together with two very quick little stories. Take your time. Okay. One is uh, Doc Ellis. I don't know if you ever heard of Doc Ellis. He was uh, a baseball pitcher for the Pittsburgh Pirates who, back in 1970, was taking the day off and decided to drop some acid. Anyway, he gets a phone call from his manager saying, oh, they've really... Rearranged a double header. You've got a pitch this afternoon in San Diego. He was visiting friends in Los Angeles at the time. So there he is. He's just coming on, and suddenly he's been told he's got to go pitch a baseball game in, in San Diego. Anyway, he, he sets off with a friend to San Diego. And what do you think happened during the game? He pitches a no-hitter. <laughs> <laughs> and to this day, people are amazed that somebody on LSD could pitch a no-hitter. <laughs> Maybe and then the would, other quick, yeah, yeah. The other quick story is about Francis Crick, of course, who a friend and his brother, Crick's brother, confirmed that he was high on LSD when he first visualized the double helix of the DNA. Yes, yes, we're we're aware of that, and that's a very important yeah. story. And I thank you for sharing it, and I thank you for being with us today. Pleasure, pleasure was mine, Richard. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye bye. 